On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the October 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Andrew Menzies-Gow from the Royal Brompton Hospital in London in the United Kingdom. He's here on the behalf of the British Thoracic Society Difficult Asthma Network. He's going to talk about his article, Dedicated Severe Asthma Services Improve Healthcare Utilization and Quality of Life. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here. My next guest is Dr. Matthew Masoli, a consultant respiratory physician from Plymouth Hospital in the United Kingdom, and he's here to talk about his accompanying editorial, quote, difficult asthma, end quote, not as easy as you think. Matthew, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so guys, let's, let's start from the just, you know, kind of some of the definitions. Um, you know, severe asthma generically can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, how are you guys defining it in the setting of your study? I think that's a very good question and a very important point to start with. So the way that we look at it in the UK is anyone that's referred to us at either step four or step five of either our British Thoracic Society guidelines or GINA guidelines who is symptomatic, uh, we say that they have difficult asthma. Now, within that patient population, uh, in our experience, somewhere between 10 and 20% of patients won't have asthma causing their symptoms, and approximately a third either will be... uh, non-intentionally non-adherent with their treatment because they're not being shown how to take it correctly, or sometimes intentionally non-adherent because they're worried about side effects. So before we say that someone's got severe asthma, we systematically assess them to make sure that we've treated any triggers, we've removed any occupational causes, we make sure they know how to take the treatment correctly and, and indeed that they are taking their treatment correctly. And that's really why we published this manuscript because for the first time we wanted to demonstrate that prospectively um, systematically assessing individuals with a label of severe asthma actually improved both health economic outcomes and patient-reported outcomes. How, how big a problem is this? I mean, you know, obviously within the experience in the UK, um, but, you know, obviously depending on the study you look in and the times, the definition, you get a wide range of what someone would label as severe. How big a problem is it from your perspective? I mean, I think severe asthma is certainly a big problem in in the UK and across the world. So within the the National Health Service economy, we spend a billion pounds on asthma care every year. And it's thought that up to 50% of that is um, due to the relatively small number of individuals with severe asthma. And it's estimated that that's something between 5 and 10% of everyone with a, a label of asthma in the UK. Wow. So quite a quite a large problem then. Yes, <laughs> but I think and also. From, as, sorry, after you. No, go ahead, please. And from our our point of view, certainly an unmet uh, unmet need because not only are, are these individuals consuming a large amount of healthcare, we know that they often have a, a poor quality of life, side effects from the conventional treatments that we tend to use, um, and significant morbidity from long term use of high dose inhaled and oral corticosteroids. Right, so let's also, um, I guess, try to hammer out some more definitions from the perspective of just for our listeners. The, you know, the, your, your clinic says we're going to talk about the severe asthma you know, uh, you know, network, uh, the difficult asthma network. Mm-hmm. As you pointed out, you know, these people have been labeled severe asthma. They're on step four, step five therapy, mm-hmm. um, and then infrequently in some cases discovered that there's either an alternative diagnosis or, of course, um, or other mitigating factors as to why their asthma was so, indeed, difficult to control. Um, I guess we should first start off with, um, let's make sure that everybody's aware of what, what you're meaning by step four, step five therapy. 
Sure. Generically yeah. speaking. That's important. So it's broadly the same whether you look at our, our British Thoracic Society guidelines or genus. So it's step four involves a patient normally taking a, a combination of a high dose of inhaled corticosteroids and a long-acting beta agonist. And other medications are also often used at step four, including Montelukast, Teotropium now more recently, and sometimes oral theophylline tablets. Whereas at step five, patients are taking either re- recurrent or sometimes continuous oral corticosteroids. Um, and now, in the last few years as well, if they're suitable for it, using the biologic omelizumab. Okay. So, so let's launch into, you know, what you all are trying to accomplish here, um, both with the creation of this, this asthma network, uh, this difficult asthma network, and then obviously, um, you know, what was found. And, and you know, um, let's have Matthew chime in any time in regards to the, to the findings and, and, and how they're, you know, we think they're relevant. So for, for a while in the U.K., we've recognized that severe asthma is, a, a, a difficult condition to diagnose because there is no gold standard test and that we know that patients presenting with difficult asthma may not have the disease causing the symptoms. They may not be as adherent as, as they should be. So for a long time, we thought that logically, systematically assessing individuals presenting like this would improve outcomes. But it's all very well us thinking that's the case. Clearly, we have to demonstrate that that's the case. Now, we've previously published in Thorax a, a few years ago a retrospective analysis demonstrating that once people were systematically assessed, their outcomes improved in terms of their lung function and unscheduled healthcare utilization. But obviously, there's always concerns about patient recall, bias, and regression to the mean. So we wanted to look prospectively this time at a larger cohort of patients spread across seven centers across the whole of the UK, including Northern Ireland and Scotland, to make sure that what we were doing actually made a difference and actually improved patient reported outcomes, including asthma control and quality of life, as well as healthcare utilization. So, I mean, so are you essentially, I mean, let's take our, take our, everyone through then what, what this involves. I mean, is it, is it, is it mentally kind of starting with this patient who's now presented to your, to your specialty clinic and saying, we're going to start with the assumption that you don't even have asthma because let's look, we're going to start from scratch. We're going to make no assumptions here. We're going to systematically assess you in the following ways. And A, is that kind of like your, you know, your mental attitude as you walk into it? And B, what is that assessment? What is it that, that you guys are doing? So that's certainly our attitude that let's look again. Let's start from, from, start from the beginning, try and understand what's causing all the, all the current symptoms, not assume that it's just asthma. So certainly in the United Kingdom, uh, the diagnosis of asthma isn't often that secure. Patients may have presented many years ago with intermittent breathlessness and, and been given a label of asthma. And the way that, that our primarily symptom-driven guidelines work, people tend to take more and more treatment and then get labeled as having difficult or severe asthma with, without any significant objective tests being done previously. So we thought we needed to try and be more logical than that. So we start from scratch and we assess everything. So we look at what's causing the symptoms. We will do some formal lung function tests to demonstrate obstructive airways disease and bronchodilator reversibility. And in the absence of that, we'll look for airways hyperactivity, either with a mannitol test or a histamine challenge test. We'll review whether or not people are allergic, so we'll do some skin tests. We'll look at whether their airways are inflamed, either with an induced sputum test to look at the ear sniffle count or exhaled nitric oxide. We'll frequently perform a CT scan of the chest, as this often gives us alternative diagnosis. And we'll try and treat the whole patient, the whole individual. So we'll 
will look at their bone density if they've been taking oral corticosteroids for a long period of time. We'll look to see if they have other side effects from high-dose inhaled and oral corticosteroids, such as cataracts and diabetes and hypertension. And it, it's uh, very much a multidisciplinary assessment. So it's not just the doctor, the physician, but there'll be nurse specialists, physiotherapists involved, often clinical health psychologists, to try and treat the patient as a whole. Matthew, what do you think? Just nail on the head. Yeah, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, Andy, you really hit the nail on the head there that um, the the key with the difficult asthma centers is, um, and it's absolutely right, the the first question you ask is, um, is it asthma? Are your symptoms due to asthma um, or is it asthma plus something else? And the, the key is having a multidisciplinary team that assess the patient so it isn't just a respiratory physician um, on their own. So it really is key to have the asthma specialist nurse, the physiotherapist, the psychologist, um, all working together to assess the patient um, because, you know, we're focusing on the patients, uh, treating the patient's symptoms, improving their uh, quality of life, and getting the diagnosis right first is key to that. And I think certainly in my experience uh, in, uh, in difficult asthma, um, by the time the patients get to a specialist centre, the, the waters are very muddied uh, and trying to go back and establish whether there is, uh, whether the diagnosis of asthma is, is correct, whether the symptoms now are due to uh, uncontrolled asthma can be really quite difficult. Um, and, that, and that's a, a really important part of the uh, systematic stepwise uh, investigation and workup in these centres. So, so tell us what you found then, because I can imagine, you know, as you're proposing this, there's, there's the one side already of a discussion that's going to say, wow, that, that sounds time-consuming and expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots, when anytime someone says multidisciplinary and starting from scratch, I can always, you know, here in the U.S., that makes an insurance company cringe, right? And so let's talk about what you then ultimately found. Yeah, no, I, I think that's important, and that's one of the many reasons that we did this to demonstrate that not only do we think it's the right thing, but in terms of health economy, health economics and patient-reported outcomes, it is worth doing. So we looked at a, a significant number of individuals across the seven centers. So we started with 479 patients who had a systematic assessment over a 12-month period. And after we, we'd assessed these 479 patients with difficult asthma, in fact, 397 had severe asthma. So we immediately found that 19% either had a different condition causing their symptoms or hadn't been shown how to take the treatment properly or for whatever reason were non-adherent. So immediately you cut the numbers down. And remember that this is a relatively small patient population, 5 to 10% of all asthmatics, but consuming up to 50% of asthma-related health care, so worth spending time and money on and getting it right. And once we, we took that population, we then... Um, looked down and drilled down, and we found that in the 12 months after they'd been systematically assessed, individuals had less healthcare utilization in terms of both primary care and emergency room visits, less hospital admissions, uh, slightly better lung function, and importantly from a patient point of view, uh, clinically important improvements in both their Juniper Asthma Quality of Life questionnaire and their Asthma Control questionnaire. That's incredible. What, tell I, yeah, me. I mean, I th- we were very pleased to see this because it does justify what, what we've been saying for a period of time. 
Well, I love the fact that it's it's focused on so many different things. I mean, clearly, you know, both from the quality of life perspective, um, you know, great, then that's patient centric, and then mm-hmm. the reduction in the healthcare utilization, fine, then that's healthcare economics centric, yeah. um, and then also just even the percentage of people that you were able to show, um, you know, have been carrying around this label being put on meds for severe asthma yeah. that you found an alternative diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. Just for um, just to expand the discussion, for example, what were some of those alternative diagnoses? It's very broad ranging. So um, examples are occasionally we will see someone who has a, a very slow growing tumor in, in one of their main main airways, and that will get, mimic severe asthma. But when we do a CT scan, it's clearly not that. We um, occasionally find other respiratory conditions such as bronchiectasis. Commonly, we find more COPD rather than asthma. We see people with pulmonary hypertension or cardiomyopathy. And frequently, because asthma is such a common diagnosis, it's the first label that people are given when they're breathless. And so it's very important, as as Matthew said, that we we pick that apart and start again from scratch. And I think that's key to to, um, not just the difficult asthma centers, but also... um, asthma in general, particularly in primary care, that we get the diagnosis right first time um, so that you don't get into this situation of patients on high-intensity treatment still having lots of symptoms when you, you're not sure of the diagnosis because um, the, you know, there is evidence of uh, a, a, quite a significant uh, rate of misdiagnosis of conditions as asthma, um, anywhere between 10 to 12% in the uh, multidisciplinary systematic assessments, um, but also up to 30% um, in uh, the um, Canadian Medical uh, Journal, Aeronatel, demonstrated that uh, about 30% of patients um, didn't have evidence of asthma despite a a previous physician diagnosis of asthma and being on treatment. So I think it is really key to get the diagnosis right um, first time, uh, and that's a, um, an issue for, for primary care, and that will significantly help with um, the difficult and severe asthmatics further down the line. Yeah, I would agree. Now, Andrew, let, let's um, uh, have you uh, hypothesize here for me, because I know one of the things in your discussion, you know, the, the, the data doesn't tell us necessarily what intervention, you know, in other words, it was the, you know, because you tested for this or because we trained them in inhalers over here, this is why we saw all these great effects. It's obviously, it is a composite because it is a group effect, but I'm, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are and your group's hypothesis are. That what's, where are we getting um, the most return here? What's more bang for our buck? Yeah. You know, is it, uh, is it, is it, you know, and, I, and there is some discussions like you have about, you know, you do have some data on uh, use of some of the biologics and, yes. and whether that you think is driving it. You know, just, I would love your thoughts. Yeah, no, it's, it's very hard to know because it is such a multidisciplinary approach. What I would say is when we looked at a previous cohort and we looked retrospectively, the thing that we tended to do before we had biologics was put people onto oral corticosteroids, and that would improve their lung function, suppress their bloody eosinophil count, and they'd have less hospitalizations. But as an adverse consequence, their, their body mass index, their BMI, rose so that's where we used to be. I think some of it is undoubtedly the correct use of biologics because in, certainly in the correct patients, you can have a significant benefit. So some of it is around the correct use of biologics. And I think given that 
either later on this year or early next year, we'll have the second biologic anti-R5 available, and in two years' time we'll have anti-R13s and we'll have multiple biologics. I think it's even more important that we systematically assess patients to make sure they're correctly phenotyped and they go into the correct biologic first time rather than um, a, a, a sequence of trying multiple different biologics. But beyond the biologics, what are we doing differently? I'm sure there is a lot around the multidisciplinary issues around ensuring people are optimally using their prescribed therapy. They have a personalized asthma action plan. They use it. I think physiotherapy is certainly very important in this group of patients. Frequently, they have a, an element of fixed airflow obstruction and a graded exercise program similar to pulmonary rehabilitation that's used in COPD. We frequently use that with our patients, and I'm sure that is improving some of their outcomes. Yep. Matthew, one of the things you commented in your, editor in your editorial was also the, the fact that, that, you know, fine, there was this discussion on the, on the um, biologics, but also the significant amount of people that were stopped um, from, on the biologics. You know, and coming back again to, I think, you know, Andrew, you said, you know, using it in the correct phenotypic type of patient. Um, so I found that fascinating in the data that both, you know, clearly there were some people that got started, but, but also a significant amount of people that it was then stopped um, or had been obviously inappropriately being used or at least potentially inappropriately being used. Is, is that to Andy or, or me? Well, either one of you. <laughs> you, yeah, had I mean, on something I, like, you had commented on that in your editorial. Yeah, I mean, I did notice that. I thought that was really interesting um, that, I mean, 30 patients started on emilizumab, um, but uh, a number of patients came off it, indicating that that, that maybe... How, how was response assessed in the first place? Were they really responders? Or maybe it's now not as an effective treatment. And that's a really important part of a dedicated severe asthma service, that you use high-cost treatments appropriately. Um, so, And with all the new biologics coming through, this is going to be even more important that we have very robust mechanisms for identifying the right patients for the right biologics. Are they definitely adherent to treatment? And then uh, a very robust mechanism of assessing response so that we know that um, these people who are going to be on long-term treatment, long-term expensive treatment, uh, are, are the right ones and that they're still gaining benefit from that. Right. I mean, Matt, I entirely uh, agree with, with your points, and that's one of the reasons we do systematically assess and we continue to. And I think you know, severe asthma is a very complex disease with very logical treatments but that don't work for everyone. And I strongly believe that individuals who are suffering as much as, as people are with severe asthma should be looked after in dedicated centers who are looking after a high volume of these patients and are very used to stopping and starting biologics because, I, I'm, again, I think that's one of the reasons that the outcomes improve. One question I wanted to ask you, Andy, was um, quite, the, the maintenance oral steroids came down uh, yeah. a mean of 15 to 10 yeah. which and a reduction in... Um, in short courses as well, which is really yep. important to, to patients as well as being statistically significant. But um, what are your thoughts on the number of patients going onto maintenance steroids um, and the number of patients coming off oral steroids? So although the, the mean dose didn't change hugely, um, the numbers coming on and off was, was quite um, significant. And I wondered what your thoughts are on, on that. Is it due to more appropriate use of oral steroids, you know, targeting them to the right patients? Yeah, Matt, I well, I would like to think so. I hope so, because rather than 
purely going on symptoms alone, which is, is what tends to happen, uh, we would be hope we would be looking at bloody eosinophil counts, frequently sputum eosinophil counts, and exhaled nitric oxide. So looking at when inflammation is related to symptoms or inflammation is out of control and targeting on the basis of that rather than symptoms alone. So some individuals with ongoing airway and bloody eosinophilia would have been converted onto oral corticosteroids and other individuals who were symptomatic but for reasons other than classic T2 high inflammation would have come down off the oral corticosteroids, hence the change. And also in terms of the overall steroid dose, we know from previously published studies that it is possible to down, down titrate the, the amount of prednisolone patients are on. And obviously, in a dedicated center, we try and maintain people on the, the minimum oral corticosteroids that, that we can. And of course, Andrew, you mentioned exhaled nitric oxide. I'm sorry, go ahead, Matthew. Well, I was just saying that uh, there's quite a quite high proportion of patients, 40% on oral steroids, but of course, uh, prior to... Um, escalating treatment or considering biologics, um, you know, it's, it's easy to assess adherence with patients on oral steroids because you can check prednisolone and cortisol levels. And that's another thing that um, predominantly only seems to happen in a dedicated sphere asthma center is that you can get some objective measures of adherence in patients who are steroid dependent, which I think is really important as part of the workup. You know, Matthew, I entirely agree. So uh, the published data suggests that if, as a clinician, you're in front of a patient and you're worried about whether or not they're adherent, it's very hard to tell. You need objective data. And so we find the use of serum prednisone and cortisol levels incredibly helpful. And the issue here is not to try and catch people out. It's to understand why people take the treatment the way that they do. And, and given the side effects associated with oral corticosteroids, I can entirely understand why people want to take the minimum amount that they can. Can you expand some on the AQLQ, the Juniper AQLQ scoring, just to put that into the clinical context for our listeners, both yeah, especially if they're not familiar with that, that scoring system and, and its both clinical significance and then obviously the, the statistical significance you saw within your data? Sure. So when, when we look at Table 4 within the manuscript, we look at the Juniper Asthma Quality of Life questionnaire. Now, this is a very well-validated questionnaire that patients fill in with different domains, looking at symptoms, activity, emotional stresses, and environmental triggers, but there's an overall score. And the higher the overall score, the better the, the patient's quality of life is. An improvement or a decrease of 0.5 is considered clinically significant. And in our cohort, patients' AQLQ started at 3 and rose to 3.7. So that's more than the minimal clinically important difference. It's in the correct direction. An AQLQ of 3 to start with is pretty low and gives an indication of how symptomatic our patients were at baseline. An improvement to 3.7 is certainly a clinically significant improvement and is of the magnitude that you see in studies with novel therapies for severe asthma. And importantly, it was highly clinically significant with a, a p-value of less than 0.001. Great. The other thing to say about the AQLQ is what was really interesting was the clinically significant improvement across all domains, mm -hmm. uh, not just the overall score, but symptoms, activity, emotional, environmental. So it, it was all going in the right direction. 
What about also the data that you have on the um, exhaled nitric oxide? So I'm just curious, as you were talking about using that and other tools, uh, you know, bloody eosinophils, et cetera, to try to help gauge responses. Those were the two areas, though, that there were not changes seen in the baseline to follow up. Does that simply reflect um, whether, you know, as you said, not all centers had exactly the same testing uh, parameters or um, obviously wide varied uh, disease. This is a marker that's useful maybe in some of your patients, not all of your patients, and so that it would be, you know, diluted out, et cetera. I think probably a combination of everything you mentioned. With, it, with regards to the exhaled nitric oxide number, the median value was 34, and that's kind of in the middle. It's certainly higher than 20, but it's less than 40 or 50, depending on which guideline cut you want to take. Um, and that suggests that patients probably were taking their inhaled corticosteroids. In fact, where we tend to use it now is a little bit more nuanced, and this work has particularly been led by Liam Heaney in Belfast, in that when patients have a high nitric oxide, we will um, watch them taking their inhaled corticosteroids for anywhere between five and seven days to see if it actually suppresses. And we can use that as a very useful test of either adherence or partial steroid resistance. Now, within the, blo the bloody eosinophil count, that's such a variable number within individuals, let, let alone within, uh, within a single individual, let alone within hundreds. And I suspect that if you looked at some individuals who went on to oral corticosteroids, that bloody eosinophils would have fallen significantly and others would have come up a little bit when we removed the oral corticosteroids because they weren't helping their symptoms, which is probably why overall the numbers stay the same. Another, another question for you in regards to just, you know, other, other components of measure of severity when we talk about, and then healthcare utilization, looking at obviously primary care slash emergency visits versus hospital mm -hmm. admissions. Um, on, your, on your demographics and data, anything about uh, histories of non-invasive ventilation or intubation and mechanical ventilation, uh, you know, status asthmaticus, et cetera, was that data in, in this group or was, or I guess maybe another way to ask, was there anybody too severe, if you will, that you, they weren't included in this data set? No, so this, what, this takes all of our patients, even, even the most severe, and although we don't publish in, in this group the demographics, um, we've published in previously the demographics of the number of hospitalizations and the number that have, have been to intensive care um, ever previously, and overall the demographics have, are very similar in that the majority of patients are, are Caucasian women with an elevated BMI, and no one would have been considered too severe to go into this systematic approach. Great. So, guys, we've been talking for a little bit, and I want to be respectful of your time, especially since we're coming to the end of your day um, as we're recording this. But um, what haven't we spoken about? What, what have I missed or what hasn't been discussed? Matthew, what do you think? I'm very close to this because clearly I rate it, so I'd be, I'd be <laughs> grateful for your opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> for, for me, uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've been to uh, all the data. I think I think it's very good, and it really highlights, um, for the first time prospectively, very significant improvements in in hard outcomes, um, you know, healthcare utilisation, oral steroid use, and, and quality of life. And these are things that are really important to not just us as clinicians, but patients um, particularly. And then leading on to that, the, the kind of judicious use of the the kind of forthcoming um, high-cost biologic agents, of which I, th I think uh, there are going to be a number. And I, I think they will revolutionize the way we approach um, severe asthma now. Um, you know, 
all of these centres really uh, take on a, a phenotype-driven approach to the management of asthma. Um, so, I mean, that's, I guess what was interesting is um, do all centres have a, a similar phenotype-driven approach? My understanding is um, that they do. And, and, and what do you think about the, the non-TH2 kind of uh, high patients or the, the T2 low patients, if you like? Yeah, I mean, Matt, Matt, that's a very good point. So, I mean, I think overall I was very pleased with what this data showed because it, it backed up what we felt and what individual patients were telling us. This is a, high, uh, a relatively small number of patients with a high cost, with a clear unmet need, with multiple new targeted therapies becoming available, but they, they themselves will also be high cost. So it's very logical to do this to make sure the right patients get the right treatment. But as Matt has said, I think where we'll be in five years' time is those people with so-called T2 high asthma with a lot of eosinophils and R4, 5, and 13 will be very well served with the monoclonal antibodies and other biological therapies that we'll have available. But we will be left with a cohort. At the moment, I don't think we know how big that is of T2 low asthma. And these patients are equally symptomatic and all of these therapies don't particularly work well for them. And I think that'll be the big challenge over the next decade, understanding what T2 low asthma is within severe asthma, how systematic assessments help that, and what therapies we should be targeting for those patients. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And it's similar with the, the difficult asthma patients. They, they similarly have a high symptom burden. Um, they have you know, significant uh, healthcare costs, not quite as much as severe refractory asthma, but still very significant um, between two, three thousand uh, pounds per patient. So, um, you know, these patients, how do we best serve them? I think the T2 high patients, um, the future is pretty bright. I think there's going to be a lot of um, real game-changing treatments. But uh, my feeling is probably the multidisciplinary approach uh, and the ongoing multidisciplinary approach really will help these patients with um, difficult asthma and T2 low disease um, more, and that's why I think it's still going to be key that uh, they are served in these kind of specialist centers. Well, and I wanted to, I mean, maybe to start to close of the discussion and highlight also the the applicability of, of, of this approach and this data um, around the world, because one of the things that, you, you know, when we were talking at the beginning, you know, multidisciplinary approach can come from multiple different factors and, and may only need to necessarily be led by one clinician. And the testing that you were discussing, I mean, pulmonary function testing, plus or minus a CAT scan, various blood work, but a lot of that is is widely available. And I think one of the things that I'm struck by your data is that it's a it's a very obvious reminder to anybody who's in practice seeing you know patients that that this those that percentage of patients within your uh, clinical practice that are always rising to the top as far as consuming time and and so forth um, it it it's incumbent upon the the clinician to then refer these patients on to specialized centers whatever that may be whether they're in a formalized network like you have in the UK or otherwise. Um, simply because now we have data that shows that these high uh, utilization patients, that a, that a more thorough approach actually has definitive benefit. Uh, I mean, I'd entirely agree with that. We've tried to adopt that as wholeheartedly as we, as we can in, in the United Kingdom. And I know cert certainly multiple other countries in, in Europe and in Australia are trying to build similar sorts of networks to, to replicate our findings. 
Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. This was, as expected, a, a fantastic discussion, and, and congratulations again on your on your data and on your publications. And, and, and Matthew, thank you so much for actually a really fantastic editorial that encompass, uh, accompanies this this article to I think put a lot of context uh, to the to the you know the clinical data. So uh, thank you both, and, and for a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank pleasure. you. Thank you very much.